Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about a subject near and dear to your and my heart, which is media. And every time a big documentary or film on TV or the internet or, or the movies comes out on China, Africa, we always like to kind of take it apart, dissect it, uh, kind of, you know, I'd love to hear your insights on that, in part because you are a media scholar there at WITS. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, an excellent documentary, actually, I might say, that came out of Al Jazeera, who has a, a nice track record in producing competent material on China, Africa, unlike a lot of other media outlets. Um, Marwan Bashara and the team at Empire came out with a documentary called The New Scramble for Africa. And uh, this was a fascinating program, and I invite everybody to actually watch it. We've put links up to the show uh, in my Twitter feed at EOLander, as well as on our Facebook uh, page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. You can find it on YouTube, and you can also uh, go right to the Al Jazeera website. So uh, right off the bat, let me just kind of set this up, and then we're going to hear from the host, Marwan Bashara. Uh, throughout our discussion today. Uh, and let me just kind of set it up, Kobus, and then I want to get your take before we get uh, into the details of it. It's the new scramble for Africa. And the key part here, and the, his key premise is, are Africans benefiting from the new engagement, not only from the Chinese, but from the French, from Americans, from all over? And, and he really asks the one question that everybody wants to know. But two decades after the Cold War, it seemed that Africa is rising again, that investments are flowing in. We need to ask the big question, and we need to ask it in Africa. Are Africans at last taking matters into their own hands, or is this just another scramble for Africa? So, Kobus, another scramble for Africa. What was your impression, uh, from both from his premise and the key question that he's asking, and you know, when you started uh, you know, on this, you know, to listen to the show? I thought uh, he he made very interesting points. Um, I, I like that he put Africa at the center. Um, I was a little concerned at the same time that China tended to fall off the table a little bit. Um, he, there was a there was a bit of a conflation between Chinese companies and the Chinese government, and he didn't get the chance to interview someone from the Chinese government. And now I'm immediately don't want to necessarily blame me for that because we, we all know that sometimes it's very hard for, to, to get, you know, a spokesperson from, from the government or actually from Chinese companies to actually talk to the press. So, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, kind of an oversight on his part. It might just logistically have not, not have been possible. But what it ends up, what ends up happening is that China, there's a lot of speaking for China. China, but not a lot of speaking with China. Um, and that, I think, was a little bit of a problem for me. Yeah. Uh, again, I thought this was an excellent piece of journalism. And so I will kind of say that right up front. However, uh, my critique, and I actually even brought this to Bashara himself on Twitter, um, I really felt like he had his mind made up right from the very beginning, that Africans are getting a raw deal, uh, that they're not benefiting. And, and just by framing the subject in this very provocative language of the scramble for Africa, carving up the continent, using this very imperial colonial language from the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries to describe what I think is a uniquely 21st century phenomenon. And even at some point, some of his guests that he interviewed said you know, that the phenomena 
in the early parts of European colonialism is very similar to what it is today. And I just I think that sends people in the wrong direction because what we're seeing today is, is radically different. Let me share with you, Kobus, a little discussion that I had with Bashara on Twitter where I said, quote, just watched AJ Empire on China and Africa. Interesting, although Marwan Bashara clearly had his mind made up. Bashara then replied, he said, we just need to ask the hard questions, probe emerging and re-emerging powers. Still haven't made up my mind, smiley face. And I replied, not better or worse, just very different. It's a uniquely 21st century phenomenon that defies 20th century labels. And then his final comment to me, which after that the conversation went silent, was, I'm not sure about that. It's not that cut and dry. And I guess my point to him was, and going back to your point about not, you know, he didn't bring in the nuance I felt, was that, you know, he really framed things in the, in the, from the point of view of countries, that China, France, America, and so much of what's happening on the ground, particularly from the point of view of the Chinese, is not being done by a country or a government. It's being done by individuals. Um, this, is, this is, again, a, a why it's not comparable to the scramble for Africa in the 19th century, because that was really led by countries. And so I think in some ways, again, this comparison and the language that he used was problematic for me because it does frame the issue to me in a, in a light that I don't think is necessarily accurate. I, I completely agree. Um, obviously, 19th century you know, imperialism was completely based on state power. Um, and now in the 21st century, you know, a, a lot of it is based on the power and, and, and money of multinational corporations. And that's particularly true in the case of China. Um, so there was a little bit of a, a again, a, a conflation between Chinese companies and, and the Chinese state, which which is problematic. But then also, a, a, you know, a, a, some, a little bit of a conflation happening in the same direction towards France and the US. US. What also bothered me a little bit was this kind of thinking that tended to, to lump China with, with the US and France in this some, somewhat uncomplicated way, when one could just as easily have made the point that China is actually still a developing country and should then therefore be be kind of positioned within the, the growing relationships with other developing com countries and South Africa, you know, kind of. So, does it make more sense to put to lump China with France and the U.S., or does it make more sense to lump them with Malaysia and Turkey and Iran, you know? Um, and and I, I think, and especially, you know, India and Brazil. Um, it, it seems to me that that in in real economic terms, it actually makes, sometimes makes more sense to to position China with Brazil and and India because they just simply have more more in common, including the fact that they that China has no imperial history in Africa, whereas you know kind of especially France is working from a context where it was an imperial power in Africa. You know, kind of it, it, to a certain extent, it, it seemed a little bit glib for me that yeah. that this is the very fact that China is big now means that it's it's very similar to France. Well, there, whereas mm, you know, but what may now let me just play the devil's advocate here, and he didn't say this in the show, but this was clearly one of the themes that came out of Howard French's book, China's uh, Second Empire. Uh, oh, no, China's Second Continent. I forget the name, actually. But Howard French's new book, uh, where he said that although the Chinese don't have an imperial colonial past, in many ways, what they're doing is replicating uh, or having the same effect. And of course, this was the same comment that Sanusi Lamido, the former central bank governor in Nigeria, came out with, uh, suggesting that you know, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, and if it smells like a duck, and, you know, it's a duck. And what the Chinese are actually doing is imperial in nature. So regardless of whether it had that history, today, the effect is imperial in consequence. 
Is it though? Because you know, kind of one one of the issues of of you know, imperial powers provided a lot of infrastructure. You know that that was that was one 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 aspect of of European colonialism in in Af- in Africa. But that infrastructure, the decision making about where that infrastructure goes and like how it connects with other infrastructure was made by imperial powers. Whereas in the case of of China, mostly this this decision is made by African powers after a tendering process. So you know, so so is it does do those two ducks really quack in the same way? It it seems to me that there is a lot of nuance. Nuance chain differences between between the two different approaches, and and that's a, a another key point that a lot of analysts will bring up to talk about how the Chinese are using the globalized tendering process. This is an open process; they're coming in uh, armed with cheap financing, labor, and all of you know they're underpricing everybody else, but they're using the international system to to do this. So it is an open process. Another key difference, and this is again going back to to French as well, which is why. I'm troubled by, you know, by Bashara's kind of conclusions in part because Bashara is looking again at nation states in a very traditional way. Whereas interesting comparison that French made in his book was how the traditional imperial powers would make infrastructure for the country that they controlled, but they would never do anything that crossed a border because that would be controlled by another rival power. So in particularly in West Africa, where the British and the, uh, the French met up against each other, you could go right up to the border with a rail line or a road, and then it stops. One of the things that the Chinese are actually doing is they're doing a lot of cross-border development. So we have the big rail lines in East Africa. You certainly see a lot of the port development, the rail-to-port development in other parts of the continent as well, which is multinational. Uh, the data networks that are coming up, Huawei's development of information and telecom community infrastructure is cross border. And this is where I think Bashara falls down. Because what the Chinese are doing in many senses defies the simple black white. Now, he will tell you, we're asking the hard questions. We're, and he puts on that big journalist hat that says, all I'm doing is asking the questions. But I think in some ways, by the way he framed the questions, and interestingly, when you watch the documentary, the way he edits the documentary, I think is very interesting as well. The third thing I want you to pay attention to when you watch his documentary is the follow-up questions that he doesn't ask. So at several points in the show, he asked, are the Chinese positive and beneficial for Africa? And and one of the the commentators that I found most interesting is a gentleman by the name of Parcelelo Kantai, who is the East Africa and Horn of Africa editor for the Africa Report. And he talked about how, yes, in many ways, the Chinese are positive and making a contribution. And I didn't see Bashara make the follow-up questions that I think would have given some of the context that you and I are asking for to kind of add some of that nuance into it. But Kantai made a very interesting point. And this is something that not only affects Africans, but also other regions around the world. David Shambaugh, the the famous sinologist, pointed out how this is a problem in South America as well, that these countries do not have a China policy the same way that China has either a Brazil policy or an Africa policy or a Nigeria policy. And this is what uh, Kantai said. I'm constantly puzzled about the fact that there hasn't been um, um, an internal debate on this continent about what we want to do with the Chinese. The Chinese are constantly having these conferences and, you know, inviting Africans, uh, um, African governments um, 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 for, for these debates. But Africans, ourselves, whether on a regional level, at, at, an, at, at an African Union level, um, we have not actually had this debate. 
these are questions that need to be asked. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that, that Africa has the leadership, that has the leverage, that has the unity and the coordination to do any of this. So, Kobitz, that was an, a fascinating insight that, and I think this question of regionalization is, is critical here, and that was something that I was very happy that Bashar brought up in terms of how we talk about agency in Africa, that individually countries really are never going to be strong enough to stand up to a country as large and rich and powerful as China is becoming, and that if they could group together, then they'd be far more effective. The problem is is that any time Africans have ever grouped together in some kind of geopolitical format, uh, it's been rather pathetic. I mean, the African Union is the best example, but the African Union doesn't have much in the way of balls and, and doesn't have much in the way of uh, competence in terms of really negotiating effectively with big major powers. So we don't see any precedence for this uh, that is encouraging. I agree. Um, you know, the, this point that, that that Africa needs a China plan um, and needs to start um, negotiating collectively, you know, a, a bunch of people have been making that point. Um, you know, notably Sven Grimm, who we interviewed about this issue a, a while ago on the podcast. Um, and I, I, I really think it's really important because, among other reasons, because, as you said, China actually does finance cross-border development you know so so potentially all of the all of these uh, broken systems that 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 africa inherited from from european colonialism could be woven together with with chinese investment the problem is uh, you know I, I i do think the africans have been very weak about this and i think it's not only, you know, kind of general weak governance, but it also reflects, um, you know, kind of differences in opinion and differences in regional identity within Africa that is frequently kind of papered over uh, in this kind of Africa-wide focus that, that we see, for example, this week in Washington at, at the Leaders' Conference. Um, you know, the, the different parts of Africa have different different agendas um, and different ways of speaking, and they don't necessarily, they're not all on the same page. And that, I think, is reflected in this. That said, they need need to get it together. Well, um, you know, I mean, the, I mean yeah. Yeah, but I mean, oh, I, I think the, you know, this was an issue that's come up in Southern Africa quite a few times is that a lot of countries are very skeptical of South Africa, that its power will overwhelm the interests of its smaller neighbors. And so therefore, you know, a grouping in Southern Africa means South Africa. And that's something where skepticism kind of emerges. But in East Africa, where Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, in some ways, because they're at very similar economic levels, they're similar in many ways politically in their political traditions, it offers a the best hope, I would say, for a, a, an economic grouping, grouping. That's the EAC, the East African Community. But I, I come back to my skepticism, which was, you know, when I was in, in, in university studying uh, African history, um, you know, I studied a lot about Pan-Africanism and this dream in the, in the post-colonial era of, of the rise of Pan-Africanism and how it never came about. Because as you talked about, the agendas of North Africa, South Africa, East and West, and all points in between are so varied. The, the ethnicities, the languages, the economics of it all are so diverse that bringing these groups together uh, ideally sounds wonderful and maybe works well within activists on university campuses, but at the end of the day is not practical. And so the ability for the Chinese to profit from this and to divide and to conquer and to be more effective at negotiating one-on-one -on -one rather with the group uh, seems like it's, it's far-fetched. 
I suppose. I mean, I could I could foresee a, a situation where some form of maybe not pan-Africanism, but at least regional integration could actually be very profitable for China. So if you're launching something like WeChat, for example, the, the social networking service, the Chinese social networking service, which is quite big in South Africa, actually, um, if you're launching it, it's it's mu- it's much more profitable to launch it across the entire, you know, kind of sub-Saharan region or the entire kind of East African community rather than just in Ethiopia or Tanzania. So, you know, economies of scale would kick in, you know, kind of once once those, those regions are acting as regions. The problem is that they're not acting as regions. And, you know, kind of some of it in the Southern African case, some of it goes back to some of the, the, the personalities involved, you know, because, for example, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, pressure in South Africa to find some kind of way of dealing with and work, working with Zimbabwe, but Zimbabwe yeah. is a problem, you know, in lots of different ways. Um, you know, so so no matter how, one, how much one's, one wants regional integration, some countries are in very weird places at the moment, um, you know, and, and, and that makes it harder. Um, I, I was also wondering um, whether whether you you what you thought um, of the fact that South Africa as an investor never came up in the program you know kind of so there there is there, there seems to me a little bit of a logic that Africa is always the the one that's acted upon and in order to make that logic work you the, you need to then ignore the fact that South African conglomerates are buying out everything yeah. well, <laughs> in Africa but again, and that they're expanding networks right across you know kind of so so it, it became a little bit oversimplified for me because in, in certain cases South African conglomerates are doing that with logistical and financial support of China now you in know his, in his, um, now in yeah. his defense um, you, you, know, you know he treated Africa as a continent and really didn't get too much into details on specific countries. He used Kenya, for example, and the Chinese construction boom there as one kind of case study for how Chinese contractors are making progress. But he really didn't get into the limitations uh, or the, you know, the details of country by country. And again, that's you – know, okay, so one hand I'll defend him and say, well, that's the problem of producing an hour-long documentary is that if you're going to cover the broad strokes, you can't get into the details of country by country. The other side, it goes again to – the nuance question that comes up. And that's where this, this, this topic, China-Africa relations, frustrates journalists, uh, you, you know, who, who kind of parachute into this topic. You know, this is a guy who covers, you know, topics from all over the world. And so he's just kind of descended into this topic for one time for an hour. He's gonna, next week he's going to be doing something else and he's gone. And, and you and I have the luxury of every week coming back to do, you know, hour after hour to be able to, to luxuriate in the details and the nuance. When you just do an hour on it, you, you, you can't do it. But I think that's in some ways why this topic is so frustrating to cover because it lacks the nuance. Now, he made a very good point, And this is something I think you and I will agree upon, is that the youth and young people are so optimistic across the continent. And one of the things that I find, even with our 207,000 Facebook community, who is 80% under the age of 30 and 60% under the age of 24... Um, is how much more nuanced their approach is to China-Africa relations. How you can talk to a 21-year-old from Namibia who will say, you know, on the one hand, I don't really like the Chinese for what they've done for, you know, in textile imports and for them, you know, throwing people out of work because of the, the you know, crappy products that they're bringing in that undersell local competitors. But on the other hand, I do like the road that went down the front of my street. And mm. so, and again, it's not black and white. And I was... 
I liked it when he said that, uh, you know, the optimism of youth, and he focused a lot on youth because con- the continent is 70% young people, and they, in many ways, I think, are far more open-minded. So before we go, let's take a listen to Marwan Bashara's, his postscript, his last point that he made right before ending the show, and he ended on a very positive note. I don't know about you, but I'm not buying into this whole French-Chinese-American argument that they're in the continent to help Africans help themselves. You know, we at Empire, we take it for granted that global powers act out of self-interest. But what's been striking for me making this episode is the dynamism and determination of African youth, those who make up 70% of the continent's population. Their political maturity has been striking to me. They have this pan-African vision that makes it indispensable for African countries and peoples to work together in order to turn the tables on those who are trying to carve the continent into pieces. Cliché, perhaps. Simple, yes. But I say, brilliant. But it wasn't all positive, Kobus. He said, quote, carve the continent into pieces. So he had me all the way right until then. But then again, (laughs) it goes back to this idea that people are sitting in Berlin in 1885, you know, with a red pen and a map and carving it up. And that's not the way it is, you know. So I, I just, that's what, you know, he got me, I give him a B plus because he got me almost all the way there. The tone, the attitude, the questions were good. But the framing of the show to me lacked by, by virtue of the fact that he put it into this kind of colonial context. Yes, and, and you know, I, th- I think probably that that that's that aspect of the nuance of the show suffered a little bit because he also had to make space um, in the show for France and the U.S., um, which obviously do come from a much more originally 19th, 19th century kind of position towards Africa. I think it becomes very difficult to articulate what the Chinese are doing if you locked into you know into the language of Western imperialism, um, and that that's something that we've discussed many times. Is that just you know, the, the, the concept of colonialism is too clunky and too old to really deal with some of the, the problematic and positive aspects of what China is doing. We need a new word and we need a new vocabulary, I think. And the show is The New Scramble for Africa on Al Jazeera. Uh, let me give everybody a, a few links so that they can kind of engage in this. I, again, highly, highly recommended. Al Jazeera is known for producing what I consider to be the best content, the best documentaries on China, Africa. Uh, I'll give a quick shout out to our good friend. Uh, Solange Chatelard, who did King Cobra and the Dragon, which was excellent as well on Al Jazeera. But uh, Marwan Bashara's show is worth seeing. His Twitter handle is uh, Marwan Bashara, M-A-R-W-A-N-B-I-S-H-A-R-A. You can also tweet them at AJ Empire. I would engage with them. He seems like he responds to tweets. Uh, he seems rather open-minded about everything, wants the feedback. Uh, you can look, you can find that show on YouTube, on their website, and of course on our Facebook page, at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We'd love to know what you thought. Did you watch the show? Did you did you enjoy it? Did you think it was, are we, are, is our critiques, you know, are they off base? Um, do you agree? So we would love, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Facebook is a great way to do it, but you can also find us on Twitter. And if people want to find you on Twitter, Cobus, what's the best way they can reach you? I'm at Stardenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And just like Marwan Bashara was communicating with me on Twitter, you can find me at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is right on iTunes. Just search for China Africa Project. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope that you will continue to support the show. So until next time, thank you so much for listening to the China in Africa podcast. 